in a world where most people watch movies and then forget about them. These brave heroes join forces to watch them again and then talk about them. Join them in their epic journey as they go back in time, a decade and beyond, to revisit and break down films from a vast array of genres. Do these movies hold up over time? Are they classics? Find out on Retro Movie Roundtable. Starring your hosts, Brian Fry, Chad Robinson, Destin Melbarnes, Lizzie Haynes, and Russell Guest. Coming now to Headphones in Your Ears. Welcome all you lords, ladies and knights of the Retro Movie Roundtable. Welcome to the show where we watch movies and then talk about them. I am your host, Russell Guest, and joining me today is my good friend and co-host, Mr. Chad Robinson from Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. How are you doing, sir? I feel like that was the fastest intro in the West, Russell. <laughs> Where's that king? Speaking of West, let's go out West and get Mr. Brian Fry on here. How are you doing, sir? I'm doing great. Hope everyone else is too. Thanks to this, we are able to make fart sounds due to our movie today. So we, this is important stuff. This is landmark cinema that we have coming to us today. I'm excited. And to get us going here, this is a Mel Brooks classic here that we're doing. So what is your first Mel Brooks movie, Chad? I think my first Mel Brooks movie was History of the World Part 1. And I wasn't in on the joke. And so at the end of the movie, I was like, okay, where's Part 2? And everyone laughed at me because I got to it way late. So, but had a good time. It's a fun movie. You weren't confused with the Jews in space? <laughs> I want to see that movie very, very bad. He's been waiting decades. I would also watch Hitler on Ice. <laughs> <laughs> just, 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 just for the record. Just for the record. What about you, Fry? What was your first Mel Brooks movie? I'm doubling down. My first Mel Brooks movie was History of the World Part One. In fact, my mother actually enjoys quoting part of this movie to me, uh, especially after college. So my degree's in journalism, but the concentration was advertising. And my mom loves saying, so you're a bullshit artist. A BS artist, for sure. All right. This is going to be a rough movie for censorship. <laughs> you just say other words instead of those words. It works great. I would never misquote a movie. That, that, that damages my integrity as a movie podcaster. Guys... I, I never sugarcoated what you're getting with me, so I, I don't want to. <laughs> I try to be good. So my first Mel Brooks movie was not History of the World Part One. It was Spaceballs. Excellent. Yeah. yeah. And I, I really wasn't familiar with the premise of the spoof as a kid when I watched it. I just had a great time with it, and I knew it was definitely a comedy. And it was one of those things, even though I had seen Star Wars, it took me a while to get the idea of what a spoof was, and I, I watched it several times, so I love it. So, what's the last movie you saw, Chad? I saw Jennifer Lawrence's new movie, No Hard Feelings, and this is kind of a return to form for those raunchy comedies of old. It really reminds me of 40-Year-Old Virgin, and I'm not the biggest J-Law fan, but she has some comedy chops. Like, I, She did a great job. I was really impressed. Brian, how about you? What's your last movie you saw? I watched Triangle of Sadness. That sounds sad. sad. Uh, no, it's hilarious. Okay. <laughs> it's absolutely fantastic. I highly recommend it. Okay. It is 100% a dark comedy. It's just about vapid people on a boat. And <laughs> it's, yeah. Anyway, I, I definitely recommend it. Interesting. My last movie was Keeping Up with the Joneses from 2016. 
I had a good time with that. Chad, what movie are we going to cover today? Touched on it, but we are doing 1974's Blazing Saddles. That's right, 1974. The budget for this movie is $2.6 million. It grosses $119.6 million domestically. According to thenumbers.com, that puts it at number one on the year. Ahead of Towering Inferno, Blazing Saddles came out on February 7th, and the general expectation that still persists to this day that February releases, and this goes for April into October to some degree, are times when studios release limited confidence movies. They just don't believe they're going to have good returns. And this movie was thrown out there in February, and it was an unexpected hit for them. The studios, as we will go into talk about, didn't believe in this movie. And it's interesting that Millbrook's not only had a huge year with this one, but he also dropped out the masterpiece of Young Frankenstein the same year, which was number four in the box office that year. So 1974 is the year of Mel Brooks. And man, it makes me happy to see comedy dominating a year like this. Blazing Saddles gets a 7.7 from IMDb. The critics of Rotten Tomatoes love it far more. They give it a 90% and the audience scores right there with them at a 91%. Uh, It is an Academy Award nominee for Best Supporting Actress, Best Film Editing, Best Song for Blazing Saddles, Music by John Morris, and Lyrics by Mel Brooks. It is an Online Film and Television Association Awards winner, Hall of Fame motion picture. It is a BAFTA Film Award nominee. It has two of those for Best Screenplay and Most Promising Newcomer for a Leading Role in a Film for Clavon Little. And Writers Guild of America Award as well, Best Comedy Written Directly for the Screenplay. And here's the big one. AFI Distinction in 100 Years of Laughs. This is ranked as the number six funniest movie of all time. Chad, had you seen this one before? Of course, of course. Yeah, this was one that I saw a ton through high school. Although revisiting it for the first time in in a couple of years, I would catch it on TNT, TBS, whatever. People that are rerunning this type of movie all the time. And I forgot how edited for TV this movie really is. There are some things that cannot be said in daytime TBS programming. To say the least. I'm surprised you could understand any of this movie if you played it on regular television. I don't know why they bother showing it on daytime TV. It's like watching Bad Boys on TNT. It is, it's unlistenable. Of all the things that they edit, the famous thing that they edited out was the campfire scene. Like that was the big draw of seeing it in DVD or Blu-ray form was campfire scene would be put back in. Brian, had you seen Blazing Saddles before? So I, I thought so <laughs> when I started this. I was like, oh, yeah, I haven't watched that in a while. Let's, let's watch it again. I think this fell victim to I tried to watch it or I was at a party when it was on or something. I've been in your presence while it was on the screen, by the way. <laughs> yeah. So, so it's, it's one of those things. But like upon rewatching, like I didn't remember anything. Like there were huge chunks of this movie where I'd recognize jokes that I've heard people make or quote. But I, I couldn't put anything to it. So for all intent and purpose, I've never watched this before. I, I'm just going to call myself out on this because typically if I watch a movie once, I remember most of it. If I watch a movie twice, I can give you some lines. This, I had nothing. So it was effectively a fresh rewatch, if not a first time. Well, I got to it in high school. And I was going through AFI classic movies. And this one, I obviously was a Mel Brooks fan. So I watched this one 
I was an established Mel Brooks fan. I had seen The Producers. I had seen Robin Hood Men in Tights. I had seen Baseball, Silent Movie. This one actually was pretty far into my forays for Mel Brooks, and it did not disappoint. It was so good. It was love at first sight, and I enjoyed watching this one with friends. I enjoyed watching it in college. I made my own little copy, like lower quality DVD, and you think you're clever in college, and then you go back later on a high resolution TV, and you're like, oh, this isn't very good. I don't know why I took the time to do that, but. Russell admitting to a $150,000 fine on a podcast. <laughs> I did. I did. I did. You, you can edit it out all you want, man. The NSA already has it. We're on Zencast. <laughs> <laughs> but I loved everything about this movie. It is one of those things that you will find yourself saying quotes from. You see it referenced through other things. This kind of comedy is influential to other things. So. I think, Chad, you, you, you said that this is a building block for your comedy when you covered Monty Python, Holy Grail. This is like that for me. This is up there. This is a top five comedies for me. So I'm showing a lot of my cards already, but I love this movie. Now, I'm going to ask you, Chad, what's it like coming back to it today? It hadn't been that long since I'd seen it last, but again, it was a TV viewing. So it I was caught off guard, I guess, by how profane it is, because you're not used to that with Mel Brooks for the most part. But he, he's satirizing the era, so a lot of it is kind of necessary. Most of the things are still strangely okay. Like, he's punching up, and there's only there's one very specific thing that I'll talk about probably a little as we get into this that does not hold up very well. I'm sure even Mel probably regrets doing it, but for the most part, it's still as charming and as relevant as ever. It's interesting when you walk the line that hard, how dangerous that is to go way over the line as time goes by. So that's actually a pretty good endorsing statement is what you're saying there. So Ryan, as a first-time viewer or a first-time focused viewer, what was your experience? Did you enjoy this? Uh, so Uh-oh. I don't think outside of... Call of Duty, World Chat, and Django Unchained, I have heard this many N-bombs in my entire life. Like <laughs> we, we cover Jackie Brown, by the way. There are three times as many N-bombs as there are in this movie, in Jackie Brown. Really? Yeah, there's 13 of them here, and there's 38 of them in Jackie Brown. I, I don't know how to word this. I think in Jackie Brown's case... When an African-American person is saying it, my brain just green lights and checks it off and it's fine. But when you have so many white people saying it, everyone was like a slap. I was like, oh, oh, God, oh, my God, you're going to get canceled. Oh, God. Yeah. So basically, I, I, I almost flinched a little bit every single one during this movie. And I was like, whew. All right. This is. All right, we're going there. We're we're having a Django. All right, we're watching a Django. This so. is not a Django, but it is, it is jolting. I will give you that. I, yeah, it is. It is. And and I got to tell you, like I I know it's probably just how we're conditioned now, and it it's just it was a lot. It was a lot. An interesting first time viewing story was uh, President Obama met Mel Brooks when they shook hands, and he talked about you know it was like. I saw Blazing Saddles in the theater and it was just so funny and I just it really made an impression on me. And so he was just buttering him up and Mel Brooks then said, how did you get through for the ticket? You know, you would have been, he, he guessed like, he's like, you what were you like 11? He goes, 13. And he goes, well, how'd you get into the theater? And he goes, 
I had a fake ID. I had my ways. Don't ask questions. <laughs> I love that. That's great. That's that's a great uh, like humanizing story. <laughs> so, so there will be spoilers that lie ahead. Get your fake IDs ready, like President Obama did, and we'll get ready. Welcome to the All Eighties Movies Podcast. I'm Bill. And I'm Jason, and this is the podcast where we talk about the blockbusters, the flops, and everything in between from one of the freshest decades for movies, the 1980s. So whether you're a brain, a jock, a valley girl, or a Jedi, we've got some 80s classics for you. Do these movies stand the test of time? Are we discovering something new? Is there an 80s movie we're finally watching for the first time? Join us each week as we dive into the cinematic nostalgia that inspired and influenced a generation. From the hits to the cult classics, we'll discuss our earliest memories, favorite scenes, fun facts, and our not-so-favorite movie moments, too. It's the All 80s Movies Podcast, now available on all major streaming platforms. Please subscribe and happy listening. All right, we're back, and this is your final warning. There will be spoilers that lie ahead. Chad, for those who haven't seen Blazing Saddles since 1974, do you want to refresh people's memories? Bart, a young black man working on the railroad in the late 1800s, is sentenced to hanging for attacking a foreman. He's saved at the last minute as the small town of Rockridge needs a new sheriff, and Headley Lamar, yes, that's Headley, appoints him knowing the racist town folk will reject Bart, and Headley can move the railroad through Rockridge community does indeed react poorly to Bart, but once the chips are down, they slowly turn to him for help. Bart finds a drunken ally named Jim, who was once the Waco Kid, the fastest hands in the West. Together, they work to foil Headley's dastardly scheme and unite Rockridge against his band of evildoers. Bart triumphs and might even earn a handshake from the town one day. He leaves because, frankly, the town is boring and sets off for a new adventure. All right. So we have a parody or a spoof movie here. Now, if I'm not mistaken, this brand of humor, the spoof, is up both of your alleys, is it not? I'll start with you, Brian. I'd say my only real qualm with this one is I felt it got a little scattered at times. But yes, yes. But by- You mean when they broke the fourth wall and just ran out, they like said, like out into the streets? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, I mean, that's that's obviously the most that that's more like, like, but that's more of the dam breaking. You know what I mean? Like they poked a lot of holes in the dam before the dam broke, and then you're just like, all right, well, I guess this is where we are now. So, yeah, it's a shotgun approach to comedy where they just they shoot you with a. Yeah, it truly, like I, I guess if I had to put it succinctly, I felt like they tried too many. Like it was such a wide array of different comedy undertakings that if they had just kind of stuck with one or two, it would have felt more cohesive. But in the end, and maybe this is why I don't remember it as well is it just, it, it, it felt so disjointed. This is coming from a family guy, diehard fan here. I mean, I wouldn't call it a diehard fan, but yeah, I mean, I, I get it. Family guy being on as long as it's been, and I probably haven't watched it in 10 years, so I don't know what they're doing now but family guy like again you you know what you're signing up for you're 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 walking into it knowing it's it's a reference based show like you the check marks you're getting are like oh i got that oh i understand that like that's it's almost like a game show where you're getting a tally for the things that you laugh at because you're like oh i'm i'm wise enough in pop culture that i understood that one 
when you're watching a movie like this, sure, there's some of that, but then it's also more like, a, you know, can can I laugh on my own or do I have to to get it to get it? I don't know. I, it just it, it seemed just a little 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 shaky, like someone took you apart and put you back together wrong. This parody is so strong it actually changes aspects of the genre. Westerns are about to undergo a change. It's not solely Blazing Saddles that did it, but this so poignantly points out so many of the cliches of the 50s and 60s Westerns that were kind of a sanitized Western genre where you had, you know, there were certain restrictions of what what you could show in the movie theaters, the Hayes Code, and then there was a television code, which was far more strict than that. And so you get this very similar way of doing things, you know, just for perspective. In 1958 alone, there were 50 Western TV shows on the air. And there were four stations on TV. If you think superheroes are saturated today, this is even more saturated. Westerns are the dominant form of action movies that leading up to this. This changed things to go get ready for like more of your 70s things where the Western is more of a flawed hero that's more gritty, you know, probably things that you'll probably relate more to, right? And so I have a hard time getting people who want to come on and cover the Westerns because they're so, so they're a very big deal in the mid-century here. But this movie has a lot of fun with that genre. But one of the things I think is cool about it is it doesn't only rely on understanding the source material. So uh, I think we've all seen spoof movies that are kind of cheap and they're just only redoing the source material with changing things or bringing in little pop culture references. This has pop culture references for the time, but the fact that we're still talking about this today, 50 years later, I mean, that's amazing because it's out, it's outliving its pop culture references. There's something bigger going on here. Chad, maybe this was more served up for you then. This kind of parody is your cup of tea, is it not? Yeah, I, I'll admit I am probably the least versed in Westerns on this podcast. Like that is just a glaring hole. I've enjoyed what we've gotten. Um, I've gotten to see Tombstone through this podcast and Silverado. I I seek them out a little more. I don't think I've seen a John Wayne movie yet. So understanding the source material is, I'm starting to understand a little bit more and it's increasing the enjoyment for me. But even without that, I think I just... He even plays the Looney Tunes theme. This this is Looney Tunes. Mel Brooks just reminds me of a Looney Tunes cartoon sometimes. And I can just sit back and enjoy that for an hour and a half. Now, like Fry said, some of the stuff that they're shotgunning, throwing against the wall, it doesn't stick for me. Really? But enough. Yeah, there's a Monty Python did the breaking the fourth wall better than this movie disagree but go on this movie drags out that end joke of breaking the fourth wall way too long for me like i i wanted it more concise even if it's a disappointing police rounding you up and saying all right off you go monty python way like what that's the movie interesting well blazing saddles and this is one of the things that Brian alluded to on the other side of the spoiler wall here for us was this movie is written in a way that is jarring. You have 13 N-bombs in it, and it is a direct representation of white people treating black people very badly. And it's done. And so. several more attempted ones that are gonged or otherwise interrupted. Yes. <laughs> um, 
but this movie directly confronts racism and is unwholesome. It brings in the farts, the brothels, the people who are strongly bigoted. And these are things that were in the West. You know, not everybody in the West was white. Every, you know, there, not everybody in the West got along. And there's not like one bad apple in your town. And this really kind of changed the way that we looked at the West in general. So, I mean, it's high position and it's high regard is not just as being hilarious, which by the way, I love the machine gun of jokes and all the things that are going on in the background. I think that's great comedy when you're doing things on different levels for different people to pick up. So you might not relate to that. Some of those dispersed things, but you're going to relate to something. I believe its strength is in the rewatchability. There's a lot of stuff buried in here. And I find myself as a better film watcher today. I didn't know who Hedy Lamar was when I watched this as a high school kid. And I still thought it was funny that everybody was saying his name wrong. Now I know that was like a, uh, you know, she was a gorgeous lady who was, uh, in a 1930s and 40s film star. And they keep calling this guy a, a lady's name. So they even directly say like, well, you can sue her because technically this is before her time. So, I mean, like th- that is something I didn't get as before. So, the more I watch this, the more I appreciate it. It is fearless. Yeah, you absolutely cannot make this movie today. Oh, yeah. I just don't, I don't think you can do it. Well, but, but here's the thing. Tarantino like did Django, so I'm not saying you can't make this movie today. I honestly don't know how he got away with it. But <laughs> there's, there's, clear, there's clearly a way to make this movie today. I just don't know what wheels you grease to make it happen i guess would be my best way of putting it i would say that you don't make this movie today because it's not because you can't make it not because of the offensive nature of what's here but i think again what i mentioned earlier about shattering the view of the sanitized western like this like oh this was a better time and everybody was helping everybody back then and we all got along and this was something that we can reflect on our past that we can then carry to where we are today, which would have been 1974, and look at that very honestly and sit there and say, there's this misconception of what's on TV, this, the, the Leave it to Beaver family, if you will. It takes that and it, it doesn't just shatter it. I mean, it just blows it up with this like, you know, whole cave full of TNT dynamite. And that's why it's such an aggressive thing. And, you know, the studios were afraid of it. This thing didn't just make, a, yes, Blazing Saddles made a lot of money. You're attacking the, the gravy train of, of these movie studios. They were very good at producing these things. They were very good at churning them out. They were formulaic. And Brooks saw parts of this that he didn't like in it. Even coming down to, I mean, he was commenting on whitewashing way before we talked. We talk about this all the time now. But I mean, he took himself and he put himself as a Jewish man in the chief role which was something that he was pointing out like and he actually used this jewish accent and stuff like that to point out and be like hey we take you know roles for native americans and we put white people in them jewish white people and nobody says anything about this so he called direct attention to it by actually using like yiddish terms and things like that that was the one i thought he probably regrets now like if you ask him not at all It's doubling down on that? Oh, no. He, uh, he, he, that's what he was saying. Like He said that there were, he was pointing out, I don't have the exact movie in front of me. He was pointing out a number of movies who had done this very thing where they took a Jewish Hollywood actor and put him in there. And so this was his way of pointing out and saying, oh, well, this is kind of ridiculous. You almost need that context then because, yeah, that was the part of all the things. I'm like, yeah, 
this this really ages poorly. Uh, the context does help that he's lampooning the issue, but I don't I don't think we have that context. Like Fry, if you're watching this movie for the first time and you see a tiny Jewish guy speaking Yiddish and almost was he doing German as well for the Indian chief? I'm like, this is not great. No, I completely agree. I think there was a couple points where I was like, what are you, what are you going for here? Like, what's the attempt? What am I not getting? It's a direct reference to work of the time. Yeah, that's helpful. Yeah. One of the things that I was surprised at, somebody, and I'm not going to take credit for this, I, there was this really great breakdown that I saw in studying this where the main backbone of what Mel Brooks does in his comedies is actually established right away with the first movie, The Producers. And it is intact pretty much most of the way through his entire career. The main character is out of his element, fish out of water. Someone has a scheme to take advantage of the hero. The main character meets a bunch of zany characters one by one. The love interest is fairly stupid. There's song and dance numbers that come in the second half of the film. The main character is going to lose everything. And there's a big fight, climax with big action scenes and all this end. And there will be a happy ending. And along the way, there will be just lots of zany characters. That is amazing. (laughs) It's the 12 chairs that we covered. It's everything that we've covered to be honest with you with mel brooks and which isn't actually it fits everything that mel brooks has done throughout his career and it's interesting how well it works and how not stale or frame formulaic it feels like because i don't think mel brooks movies just feel rinse and repeat to me i i feel like mel brooks's style is uniquely suited to a movie like history of the world part one where he gets to jump time frames consistently and you can do this comedy style and it flows more because you're not pigeonholed to just one point in time and i I think that's why like something like history of the world part one for me is at least feels more like a cohesive comedy because they're not just talking about one time frame and when they do this sort of add comedy it's still restrained within its time frames of where the movie is taking you. That's fair. So it overstays a little bit for you. You like the shorter skits. It probably is easier. That's, that's definitely what it was. Like that movie was basically a series of skits that are telling a incredibly wrong, random history. And (laughs) yeah, I, I, you know, this isn't, I'm not really knocking blazing saddles. I think it's still a really funny movie. But there are points in time where the dated nature of it and then the comedy stylings take you out of it quite a bit, even though the point was to take you out of it a little bit. Well, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to draw a movie that we covered and ask you a question. And maybe I'll throw it to you, Chad, first. When we covered A Funny Thing Happened on the Way to the Forum earlier this year, which was done earlier than this movie, that was a 60s movie. When they, we covered that, they made painstaking efforts to remove anachronisms, which I personally find can be very funny as the viewer. Now, 50 years later, we may not get all of those references. So Forum wanted to remove all of those out hard. And in this case, Mel Brooks embraces it, swims in them, talks directly to the camera and embraces anachronisms from all eras. To your point, Brian, there's, it's inconsistent and it doesn't beg to be. Um, it's saying it's unapologetically inconsistent with that. Chad, is one funnier than the other? Or is it just these are lanes and those different directors picked these lanes and they're both effective. Uh, there's definitely something lost. I had Hedy Lamar was a joke I did not get 
if you tell a kid today, hey, I've killed more men than Cecil B. DeMille, they're going to be like, okay, and they just mm-hmm. move on. There, There's a lot of these specific time frames. Family Guy suffered from the same syndrome. Like they would make Margot Kidder jokes. Okay, uh, Margot Kidder is not relevant to anyone 20 and under, most likely. They have no idea who that is. I mean, she is Lois Lane. I mean, that, right. That but how many, how, many 20, how many 20 year olds are watching that version of Superman? I know you. If they're not, then they're missing out. Yeah, your ideal world is all of them. The reality is next to none of them. Yeah, I mean, I've got kids who come into the store wearing a Nirvana shirt and they can't tell me anything about that band whatsoever. And it's, you're just like. While that is defeating, I I still appreciate the sentiment. (laughs) (laughs) So, so to your point, I mean, overall, I'm fine with it and I'm fine with growing with a movie like this. Like I appreciate it enough that I'm willing to watch it over years and years and acquire more knowledge and learn and get some of the jokes and they're funnier. There's a different joke I might get each time so I can appreciate it like that. I loved a funny thing happened on the way to the forum. That was a five star movie for me. I didn't really need context, but I also love ancient Roman history. So you put me in that setting and just have fun with the setting. I'm probably going to have a good time. Mm-hmm. So uh, yeah, yeah, you can, you can't go wrong. Can't go wrong with not uh, confining yourself to a specific decade or time frame of references. Like that's the easy road. I feel like this is the harder road, but it's still funny. I don't want one position. I want all positions. <laughs> um, but I, it's interesting. One of the things that you're saying that you're surprised with coming into this, Brian, and you said it was jolting. So Brooks wrote his prior two movies. The producers and the 12 chairs, which again we've covered. This does feel different, but it was created differently. Mel Brooks worked in TV for, you know, Sid Caesar, the show of shows, and he actually wrote Get Smart before going to his movie work. Great show. Not the Steve Carell one. Go see the original. Yeah. So he works with Buck Henry. He works with people. Uh, he, in, in his time, he works with Carl Reiner and Woody Allen, and he's actually around massive funny people and i don't know funny people might either make each other funnier anyway mel brooks missed that he wrote the producers and he wrote the 12 chairs on his own here he brought in multiple writers there's mel brooks norman steinberg andrew bergman who actually wrote the original screenplay for blazing saddles and was going to be made under a different director and would have been a very different movie james Earl jones would have been the star and alan arkin was going to direct it the movies would be completely different under that that 1971 version. And by the way, Bergman, if you don't know his name, that's the guy who did Fletch. So very funny guy. And Alan Unger and Richard Pryor. And so this cadence of these these jokes that you almost need to be written by a black person in order to make them to be enacted by Clavon Little, that is so important to how this is put together. So it's written by all these different perspectives and backgrounds, and they're all throwing out ideas with their own comedic, comedic sensibilities, and they're all contributing towards, and granted, it is a shotgun approach of all these jokes, and you get all these different voices in there, and Mel missed that and was happy to return to that busy room full of people, and he said, it was nice because I was in charge, it was especially nice because I was in charge, and secondarily, I talk loud at him. So, <laughs> so, Brian, are you familiar with Richard Pryor and his, you know, 
his bold stand-up comedy? I have definitely seen Richard Pryor stand-ups. I wouldn't say it's one of the ones that I've committed heavily to memory. I'm probably a little bit more of a modernist when it comes to stand-up comedy. I've seen, you know, the classics like Eddie Murphy Raw and that sort of thing, but I do admit even with George Carlin and some of the, you know, older Mount Rushmore guys, I've seen them before, but it's not something I rewatch very often. Got it. I think his voice is definitely all over this. Oh yeah. He was going to be the star of this movie. I don't know, Chad, can you picture prior being Black Bart? <laughs> it's a different movie. Clavon Little is just there's something about him that I, he just kind of has a uh, innocence about him, I guess, that could pass off to the townsfolk of, okay, maybe maybe I can trust him. Where Richard Pryor, he's a little more in your face about everything. And so, yeah, I, I know the studio want, or Mel Brooks wanted him, and the studio did not. The studio said he's uninsurable at this point in his career just due to, uh, I think it was alcohol or some. Some form of substance abuse, yeah. Cocaine. He, he, yeah, uh, he used drugs. Yep. Yep. So, uninsurable. So, we get him as a writer, which is still great. I mean, he's still contributing fantastic jokes to this movie. Uh, I thought it was funny. Richard Pryor was happy to go on for, for doing this. And he would, he said the line himself. Uh, he said, uh, I could be Cuban, but there's no mistake in Clavon Little. He would scare the poop out of those rednecks. And uh, this is even better. So uh, he had a, he was a good sport about it. Uh, Gene Wilder later said there was a casting change. Uh, that <laughs> Brooks and he were on the phone with each other. And uh, he was on a drug trip and said, I'm in Cleveland. And I don't know why. So... <laughs> Uh, no one ever does right madeline khan gets an oscar nomination for this out of here brian isn't this a wonderful world where you can get an oscar nomination for a movie like this uh yes i've got to tell you not to to use every single uh movie we do as a uh platform to rail against what's wrong with the academy awards these days but it's a different time that was a shocking one as I was reading through your, your outline that you built for us. And Russell does a lot of these uh, research facts and con- contributes them, so that's awesome. But I looked at that and I just said, why? Like, I haven't seen every movie in 1974, but surely there were different supporting actresses? Like, she was fine, but... It, Don't call me Shirley. I, <laughs> I did not see anything in this movie that necessitated an academy award nomination i'm she was great i thought i'm befuddled i'm so charmingly befuddled (laughs) she was fun i love her taking those r's and you know oh my a wed woes like i I did appreciate that the written note had dressing womb as well i mean that sounds like a little like joke but they just get so much mileage out of it it gets becomes compounding over and over again so I don't know. I think she she does sing. She does do a great job on the musical number. And this, you know, tired, I've jaded person who has seen everything encountering a black man and then just <laughs> turning, turning like a melting, like she's putty in his hands. All of a sudden she's she's absolutely nuts for him. Um, it's true. It's true. <laughs> that's so funny. <laughs> um, but I'll admit Lily I that was a lot, too. It's interesting you said that because Mel Brooks was handed a large sheet of paper and they said from from the producers and they said, you got to change all this stuff. And and he took it and threw it in the trash can. Um, but, <laughs> um, but metal. 
uh, he did have to do one thing later. He took that out and they added it back in and you get to enjoy it today because when it went to DVD and all the other home, you know, they, they, they threw it's true. It's true back in. <laughs> and there was a line where he'd be like, you're sucking on my arm, actually. So it, <laughs> it, it, it was uh, they, they amp it up even more. So but Madeline Kahn's character was interesting. Lucille Ball says that she believes that uh, Madeline Kahn got herself fired deliberately by behaving poorly on work that she was doing for Agnes the Good and Ma'am, which was also the same time. She gets fired so she could get paid because if she quits, she doesn't get paid. So she got fired deliberately so she could get out of that movie to then be in this movie. And that's awesome. <laughs> but then then she thinks it's a uh, uh, Mel Brooks asking her, hey, can I see your legs? She's like, oh, it's going to be that kind of audition. And Mel Brooks is saying, no, 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 no. I just need to make sure you can straddle a stool, which is a very weird thing to say. And she shows her leg anyways and says, no touching. Yeah. Well, I mean, Mel Brooks is not Harvey Weinstein. No, no. He's like, I'm happily married. I just need to see that you can straddle a stool, which I guess in, if Mel Brooks tells you that, there's probably good reason. She does have to show herself off a lot, but yeah. Yeah. So it's another one of those, that accent is based on Madeline Dietrich's character from another movie called Frenchie and the Destry Rise Again from 1939. So we have seen these things. So even when you don't know the source material, it's still funny. It just had higher dividends, even for people at the time who would have been like, oh, yeah, if you're really into Westerns, this thing is an absolute gold mine for these things. So that character or like when Gene Wilder talks about, like, why do you drink so much? That is almost taken out of another Western where he was explaining, you know, I turned around and I shot a kid, which was a heavy thing for that movie. But on here, they made it so the kid shot me in the butt. <laughs> right. <laughs> As he walked away. Yeah. yeah. So that's bending the expectations of what the audience is sitting there going like, oh, you're going to hand me this thing that I know. And they bend it and have, it's anarchy. It's, it's, it's fun. So everything can be made fun of, even the heaviest, most dramatic lines of that nature. Did you like Clavon Little, Brian? I think when the movie started, like I was kind of like, I knew the premise. So you kind of start to get into it. But I thought maybe there were some missed opportunities for him to, I don't know, talk more as we went into it. Like, I, I kind of, I guess I just wanted some more dialogue from him. Do you want him to talk to the camera more? No, uh, it's more like, uh, like, he makes his presence very known when, uh, you know, he's sitting behind the desk, like they're conversing about how they're going to screw him over. And he's sitting behind the dude's desk smoking a cigar. <laughs> and like, he makes his presence his presence known silently a lot, but I think that there were also more opportunities where he could have made his presence more known verbally earlier on. I think that's what Chad's saying. Like you have a very different movie with Richard Pryor. I actually really like his smooth laid back, very cool attitude. Like he comes off as very intelligent and just above everything in here. I think Gene Wilder sets him up with, and he says, these are the heart of, the countryside these are these are hard-working people these are you know morons <laughs> and you butchered that but i'll i'll save it later yeah, yeah. Okay. but yeah he to me he's our bugs bunny character he is outsmarting the ridiculous elmer fudd bad guys even from the beginning we get the spiritual that he sings or, or not spiritual they're they're doing like a barbershop quartet 
instead of one of the spirituals that Lyle and the gang are trying to get out of him. And then we get the ridiculous, everyone starts dancing to the Camptown ladies, and he's just cracking up. And then goes off with his buddy, pumping the handcart, singing the song that he just claimed that he had no idea what it was, just to humiliate everyone. It's a very Looney Tunes, Bugs Bunny type thing. Even with the fake hostage situation. It's fantastic where he's screaming, help me, help me. And everyone's just panicking and buying completely into it. And, and I'll tell you that that part specifically reminds me of a later Western. And it's one of my favorite lines from Tombstone when Val Kilmer's playing the piano and the drunk cowboy's like, don't you know, you know Stephen Foster, Camp Town races. And Val Kilmer goes, well, this is a nocturne. You know, Frederick Fart Noise, Chopin. I just love that whole opening run so much with the train, a construction working crew, and how thickly, you know, Slim Pickens, who's plays Taggart, is just laying it on. And when the when they drive into quicksand, he gets a lasso out, and they're thinking like, "Oh, good, he's going to rescue us." And like, <laughs> he he ends up throwing it on the train, like the the push car, and like pulling. It out. I was like, "Oh man, that push car cost four hundred dollar cart." <laughs> yeah, <laughs> and right away you see not only are they calling them mean names, not only are they you know stereotyping them, they just truly don't value their lives, which is like laying it on thick, and it's kind of funny because no one actually is that obtuse but on the other hand it's not far from the feeling that was actually there so it's remarkably honest and funny at the same time and that's just brilliant comedy that when you can say all that so man that quicksand uh, that goes back to my childhood i really thought quicksand was going to be a much bigger problem in my adult life and this movie may have been a part of it like i i haven't i've yet to encounter it but i am prepared yeah, I feel like you're the second person to tell me that in like the last <laughs> week. And I like I'd never heard it before. I was like, huh, I guess I never thought about it. But and then you said it and I'm like, there is just like a, a percentage of the population that grew up in our time range that have serious issues with quicksand. I've never <laughs> given it a second thought. And, and hearing it, I'm like, there are people out here with some serious fear. of It was everywhere. So I, 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 I get it. Like now, like if I think about it, sure, yeah, yeah, I totally get it. But it is funny that you're not the only person that said to me. Now you've put that thought in his mind. He's going to get in the sandbox with his little girl. Be very afraid. (laughs) So another one of these references is Dom DeLuise's character, Buddy Bizarre. He's doing the choreography. There's a director, Busby Berkeley, at the time, who this is a direct parody of in this song, "Time Dance Number." The French mistake is a parody of things that were happening at the time. So it's interesting when we watch this, we just go sit there and go like, well, this is something kind of like from the era. What is this? But these are direct references to things. And I got to say, if you were to watch a movie such as scary movie or something like that, and you watch it 50 years later and you lose all of the current references of the time, would it be even a fraction as funny as this is? And obviously the answer is no, it's not as good as a movie, but that's just such there's a level of writing that i will admit i am only as i study this movie tapping into that people who went there at the time did my dad said that he went he was in college and he went with some friends he wasn't 13 no he wasn't wasn't 13 no Um, he wasn't he wasn't obama 
No, no, he wasn't Obamaing. He went and he went with uh, particularly two people who are like Fry and just don't like comedies. And, you know, like we're just going along <laughs> to get along. And, um, you know, you know, morons. <laughs> Audience, I'm just an unhappy person. That's that's the problem. Two, two joyless souls who don't like fun. No, <laughs> And it made him so happy to see them cracking up this movie. The theater was electric. People were laughing. Their sides were splitting. They, the number of references that we don't get is, is actually pretty high. So the joke density seems pretty sound, even by today's standards, but there's a lot of density of jokes that we don't get as well. Like the number of Howard Johnson hotel jokes or restaurant right. jokes that are like slew. Like there's a character named Howard Johnson. Like, haha, that was a hotel name. No, it goes deeper than that. There's a sign that says one flavor of ice cream or the fact that the the facility has like orange painted roofs and like they're really digging into like the culture of Howard Johnson, which is long gone now. And you almost have to read that to even understand it. So meaning if you watch it now, you don't have that understanding. So you lose those jokes. They're not even jokes anymore. And it's still very funny. You bring up something like Scary Movie, which admittedly is very very dated if you watch it right now but it's interesting because it's kind of transformed pop culture of like now people recognize was up from scary movie and i've heard the was up mask with the the messed up ghost face mask nobody remembers that was a bud light commercial commercial was so annoying oh i remember nobody remembers that was a bud light commercial they remember it from scary movie it's a weird hijack cultural point it was a super bowl commercial and i thought it was a bad one and then i went to like junior high the next day and everybody was saying it and like (laughs) loving the and i was just sitting there going like i don't get this like what's up I got to tell you that one of the things that drives me nuts is that people forget that for about five years, Bud Light destroyed their advertising goals. They were the best rated advertising. It was, it's like Geico was in the 2000s. I mean, they were just knocking it out of the park with the frogs and the what's up. And I mean, they, they made a serious dent in their competition just based on their, their video advertising during that time. And they continued that trend through this day. Nothing at all has gone wrong for them. Nothing at all. <laughs> no, especially not recently. They're just sitting on top of the world. Alex Karras, who plays Mongo in this one, which, by the way, Mongo's character is by Richard Pryor. Like, it was, that's a character that he invented. This is Mr. Papadopoulos from Webster. but. What's more surprising that this is a nine-time All-NFL, four-time Pro Bowler, Hall of Fame defensive tackle for the Detroit Lions. I did not know that. I didn't know the Detroit Lions had good players. Oh, oh Barry Sanders? Yeah. Hey, don't ruin my burn on Detroit. I, Stop it. Megatron? Like, poor Detroit. Hasn't Detroit withstood enough? Right. You've taken out Cleveland. Let's, their entire thing is at least they're not Detroit. Yeah, I mean, uh, <laughs> you were just working your way through the Rust Belt. Watch out, Buffalo. He's going to hit you later in the show. I, uh, I, I will say this. I, I really, really enjoy watching Detroit's coach talk about anything. Listen, podcast listeners, stop sending me your hate mail. Send it yeah, to Brian. Yeah, yeah, it's fine. I, I'm joyless. Boys, girls. 
I have done nothing. Send it to Brian. Madeline Kahn and Gene Wilder actually appear in Mel Brooks's Young Frankenstein of the same year of the release. And I got to say, Gene Wilder is so good with Clavon Little. They are actually good friends. Uh, Clavon Little was a stage actor, and Gene Wilder would give him tips of like dealing with cameras and the stage crew, and they hit it off. And I got to say, it pays off in spades. Their chemistry is so good. I read that at one point Johnny Carson was considered for the role of the Wago Kid. And as funny as Johnny Carson is, very funny with Mel Brooks. If you've ever seen old clips of those two talking, they're a riot. But if you see these two in action, I don't want anything else. Gene Wilder and he are, just have this great chemistry. Yeah, you have Gig Young as well. He was cast and then his very first scene, he was going through symptoms of alcohol withdrawal, which this is a terrible character to play if you're going through alcohol withdrawal. And he, he actually collapsed. And so, yep went to gene wilder yeah yeah and gene is just so funny i mean i don't want john wayne that was their original desire was to get john wayne but john wayne said it it didn't fit his family friendly character that would have been an awful choice he did at least say what you're doing is very funny this is hilarious and i will be the first person to go see it so he wasn't he wasn't being a sourpuss about it he was just guarding his image Right. Yeah. And it's the John Cena. Well, John Cena does Peacemaker now, but he was family friendly for a long time. Yeah. He also did Blockers as well. So, well, that's true. Um, <laughs> He's breaking out of that. Yes. Also, Trainwreck. You should never, ever watch this, but in case you have, The Marine was exceptionally horrible. Yes. that There are like seven of those now. Okay. I mean, there are some funny parts. Brian, how do you like some of these titles that. Tex X was the original working title for this movie, which was a reference to the Malcolm X. Oh, no. (laughs) Brian inhales and puts his fist up to his mouth, and he's uncomfortable with me even mentioning it. Black Bart. Here's the thing. All right, so here's the thing. I'm pro making fun of anything. I think everybody needs to have a sense of humor. I think that, that there should not be gloves on comedy but that means everything's equally opportunistic on what you make fun of so i i do think that that should be a thing now if you're not funny or if you execute something in a in a humorless way yeah you might get burned at the stake for it but i do think that limiting comedy is wrong i i do feel like it's one of the last bastions of free speech we really have well there was an instance like when they were making this to your point Fry. Like even at the time, you know, Slim Pickens has to tell Clavon Little the N-word. And he has a hard time doing it, actually, because they like each other. They're, they're you know, they're, you know, and at the end of the day, you know, he said, uh, it's all right. It's it's funny. It's part of the joke. If you said it to me in some other context, I'd probably I'd knock you out. <laughs> so it, it is one of those things where everybody was in on the joke, and Mel said he did get letters even then about it, and he said they were almost entirely overwhelmingly all white people who wrote in and said they were offended yeah but purple sage was another name and then one day bill brooks is just in the shower and says blazing saddles and he calls out to his wife who's ann bancroft who did you like her in the graduate brian stop (laughs) it stop it that's out there for us to listen to as well so that's mel brooks brian hates comedy (laughs) so that's mel brooks's wife that's not a comedy that there's nothing funny about that movie (laughs) nothing funny about that movie 
<laughs> listening, uh, listening to you rage for an hour and a half was funny. Well, that's the see that I, I'm I'm doing it for you guys, the <laughs> listeners, not these two over here. The, the listeners, I'm doing this for you. I'm on your side. To be fair, I hate that movie as well, but only because people keep singing that stupid song to my wife. That's right. And Bancroft was Mrs. Robinson. But anyway, she said that was a good name. So they went with Blazing Saddles instead, which is a lot better than Tex-Ex, Black Bart, or Purple Sage. So Black Bart could have been okay, but Purple Sage is stupid. Volbeat made a song later called Black Bart, and I appreciate the Western slash uh, Blazing Saddles reference. So much appreciated. A strange band to bring up. I like them. Aren't they Finnish or something? Danish. German? Danish. Danish. Yeah. Um, Good pastries. Yeah. (laughs) Cool shoes, bro. (laughs) Um, This has been What Nationality Is That Metal Band with uh, Chad Bryan. Exactly. 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 (laughs) You know, I I think I would win that like more often than not, just just based on my my music. Interests, but so it's interesting why we're talking about not reacting well to this. Warner Brothers executives had a screening of this, which they had to do, and nobody laughed at all, even once. It was completely amiss. And it was like when I showed Chad Talladega Nights for the first time, and then you know, John, godfather of the show, and I said, Okay, I know you don't like Will Ferrell, but this one's pretty funny, and we put it on about Three quarters of the way through the movie, John tilts his head around me because Chad's on my other side. And he looks at he looks and he goes, he's not having any fun. I said, it's hard to understand. <laughs> but um, that's how that was. You could hear a pen drop in there. And Mel Brooks dashed to save this movie because they wanted to shut it down. They wanted to take a loss on it. They, they felt like it was vulgar. They had been at Brooks for wanting to change things and he didn't. I don't know how you can get away with that when the producers, of, sorry, when the executives are telling you not to and you don't listen but he sets up a subsequent screening for you know the studio employees and some regular people who came in and they laughed hilariously and the studio took a chance on it and said sure we'll throw it out there in february and thank goodness we almost didn't get this movie due to stuffy shirts hedy lamar actually did sue mel brooks over her name used Which it is hilarious yes and then they added a joke directly Mentioning that, like, of like, you can sue her because this is like, you know, the 1800s. It's 1874. You can sue her. <laughs> so good. Now, we have talked about the Mel Brooks brand of humor, and I, I detect that you like History of the World Part One here, Brian, but how is this different for you, or how does this fit in for his other work, like, as a director? I mean, it feeds to the body of work. I would say that there are at least two mel brooks movies that i would put above this one i feel like would be producers and history of the world part one is that what you're doing uh no i'm gonna go with um robin hood men in tights okay that's my favorite as well i i gotta tell you robin robin hood men in tights is still probably my most quoted mel brooks film really yeah yeah i mean i love space balls and everything i would put it under this one. Oh man but yeah, yeah, I'd say Rob, Robin Hood Men in Tights was just so freaking spot on. I and I felt like they they kept yeah, there were a couple fourth wall breaks, but I felt like they they kept a little tighter than this one. And this Robin Hood's English. 
<laughs> and unlike other Robin Hoods, right. I speak with an English accent. Right. Yes. Thank you for correcting that. And Dave Chappelle. This is my introduction to Dave Chappelle. So he's like, hey, Blinken, did you just say a Blinken? No, I didn't say a Blinken. I said, hey, Blinken. So one of my favorite movie making things that Brooks had to deal with, there was a dude standing just in the middle of the street when they wanted to run the, out of the studios into Burbank. And the man was standing there and just wouldn't get out of the way. They actually had someone come and remove him. And he came back and he was not understanding that they wanted to shoot a movie there. He might have been messed up a little bit, maybe on something. And so Brooks just, instead of shooing the guy away, which was holding up the whole production of this really expensive big scene. They sent out a waiver and asked him if he would sign it and he signed it. And so they just shot the movie. He is still in the movie with a sweater standing next to the light pole on the sidewalk. So uh, there you go. <laughs> the man in the sweater wouldn't get out of the way. And that's a fun way to get into a movie. It is. Or get arrested. Perhaps. <laughs> but that's the sidewalk, though. I think you can stand on the sidewalk. I don't know the rules of closing it down for filming but this guy was removed and came back so another fun reference is this movie opens up exactly in the same framing of where once upon a time in the west from 1968 ends as if it were a continuation from once upon a time in the west and i've not seen that yeah and it is also filmed on the same outdoor sets as westworld from 1973 the movie not the tv show disappointing that would be really cool if it was a futuristic this movie's full of anachronism, so why not? So, yeah. Um, there you go. What do you feel about the atmosphere of this movie? We don't watch a lot of westerns here, and this is not our strong suit. So, this is dicey asking us these things. But how do you feel about the atmosphere of Blazing Saddles, the look and feel of these things, Brian? They don't really keep a consistent atmosphere for this movie with all the, the broken fourth wall pieces. The Nazi soldiers. It, yeah. <laughs> I, it, it, I think, you know, even once he gets to town and everything, I, I, everything felt to me like a set in this. Like it never took me out of the fact like that it's a production, if that makes sense. Well, they built a fake Rockridge reproduction. I, no, I know. I, I, that's what I'm saying. Like, like, I feel like throughout the entire movie, I never allowed myself to settle into this is what I'm watching. It's always like, okay, well, this is them telling me what I'm watching and then making jokes about how it's not really what I'm watching. I just think it's literally how things were made at the time. So I think the aesthetic that you get at the time, you're just getting more of it. So it wasn't too, too distant to recreate it. Like if you were to make references to all those genres now, if you were making Blazing Tiles today, and referencing all those things, you would have a harder time. But at the time, this is just how movies were being made. So it wasn't much of a strain on them to do so. I did think it was funny to see the Grauman's Chinese Theater, or what was formerly known as the Man's Chinese Theater, actually thrown in there when Hedy Lamar, sorry, hi, <laughs> Hedley Lamar buys a ticket to go in. And he tries to use a uh, senior citizen pass uh, to get in, or sorry, student pass, and they don't let him. Right. One that I didn't get, was Mongo has a yes and no painted on either side of the back side of him. And apparently that's a reference to the 1950s. The buses in the back were which side was safe to pass on. So they would write it on the back of bus buses, yes or no, so that Mongo is as large as a bus. That is one of these moments of like, you kind of have to do some reading to get all the jokes. And I'm glad I get to know that now. 
Have we really gotten smarter that we now know which side of the bus to pass on? Like, why did that go away? I mean, we have beer cans that let us know when it's cold enough to drink, so. You have little stop signs that, like, fold out and into the bus. And so uh, I guess if it were done today, Mongo would have folding stop signs on the sides of his shoulders. Ah, fair enough. Yeah. And we mentioned it before. This is the first time farts were on film. And Here we go. Mill Brooks thought of it as, you know, I watch a lot of cowboys eating beans in movies, and it, invariably this would lead to a lot of farting. Thank you, Mel Brooks. Bodily functions are hilarious. And if you're not, then you should consult a surgeon to have the stick removed out of your butt. Um, yeah, I got to have that stick removed, man. I, I got to tell you, I, this is a scene that I, I could do without. It just, it goes too long. No, it's they're, so they're, funny. Their motions don't match the noises. And it's just like, okay, one or two could have been somewhat funny. This went on for like three minutes. And <laughs> I will tell you guys why I'm not going to go off on this scene because I actually do probably agree more with Chad on this than I do with Russ. But in a completely different bodily function, I think vomiting is hilarious. I know we brought it up earlier, but the family guy where they all chug Epicac and whoever, <laughs> whoever vomits last wins. I laugh so hard at that. It hurt. And it's still hilarious to me. So, you know, say what you want. I get it. Bodily functions, whatever. But I can't deny this movie when there are other examples of this that I have lost, lost it on. So it's interesting. You mentioned that it goes on a long time. They also found that when they tested this out, that this was one of the hardest laughs that people in the theater were just like gut busting on. And they actually sound mixed and raised the the levels of all the farting that was going on because people were laughing so hard in the theater. So they had to make the farts loud. There's really a precedent for this where, you know, you have a comedy, it takes something that's funny and it does it for long enough and people think it's funny and then they go too far and people stop laughing, and then it gets to a point where they've gone so far it becomes funny again. And that does work. I, like, I will testify. It's like, yeah, I've been there. Where I'm like, oh, God, this is, it's like the, the, the pooping in Austin Powers or the, the, the pee that lasts for 100 years. Like, like that was funny. Like, God, it's so, come. It's still going. So I, I even saw a, a TikTok or something recently or a Reels where a, a dude carried an igloo cooler into the bathroom, waited for his wife to pee brushing her teeth, and just stood there with this giant igloo with the button pressed, acting like he was peeing. It went for like an hour and a half, and she's like, oh my god, are you okay? And that was hilarious. So I, I, I don't know. I get what you're saying, Chad, but there's also like, well, there's this other thing where I'm like, okay, this does work for a lot of things. This, this is one of the things the studio said, this is too vulgar. You have to take this whole scene out. I appreciate the contribution to cinema. Just farts. Every, everybody farts. This is not a musical, but Mel Brooks has musical talents. He is a Tony winner. He's a rare EGOT winner. He's got an Emmy, Tony, Oscar, Grammy. So how do we feel about the music that we have here, Brian? Could I qualify it as a 1970s Lonely Island? Oh, I think it's just, I think musicals were a bigger functioning genre at the time. So to throw some music into a comedy was seemingly less jarring at the time. Mm -hmm. But I mean, 
Yeah, sure. If you want to, I mean, I, Lonely that's high praise to be honest with you. I love Lonely Island. No, I agree. I, but I mean, it's, this is all spoof music. So it's, yeah. you know, it's, it's making fun of what it's supposed to make fun of. So I, I, it does its job, I guess is what I'm saying. But the theme song wasn't supposed to be. Well, it, it wasn't. It wasn't. Like Mel Brooks asked for a Frankie Lane style singer, and Frankie Lane himself says, I'll do it. But then Mel Brooks doesn't. He says it's for a dramatic Western because he didn't think he'd sing it correctly if he was told it was going to be a spoof. So you know, Blazing Saddles is sung with true conviction. And then they added those uh, constant whip cracks in later. Now, there's one thing that Mel Brooks wasn't told to remove, but he just removed on his own. There was a song in it called Bart, about Black Bart, to reveal his backstory, and he would have been a pimp. Uh, they cut all this out to remove because it slowed down the film, and honestly, it made the character less likable. I think that's the right call. Yeah. yeah I mean, it's worked for Snoop Dogg, but... <laughs> and I do think Madeline Kahn's I'm Tired is hilarious. Mel Brooks says that's his dirtiest song he's ever written. Her apathetic, like, I've been everywhere, man. Like, as Johnny Cash would say, um, I've done it all and I'm, I'm, I'm very jaded. And while I, I don't know if the proper words for burlesque at that point, but uh, dancing uh, for the guys who are going nuts over her. So let's hand out some surprises. What do you say? Absolutely. Yeah. This is probably a formality, but MVP, Chad. I went with Mel Brooks. I, it takes a huge amount of daring to make this movie in the first place. And I think it's overall really, really well done. I mean, it's number six on AFI top comedies. Yes, it is. And Brian, MVP. Oh, I totally do that. Like when I finished it this last time, I was just like, man, the stones. And, and I'll give Tarantino the same kudos. I just like, kahunes all right yeah and i've been gushing over all of his work and he has this ability to get the big picture and to go for it and to also hit the details so well so well and his ability to take things that he heard in his life he actually as a kid held a toy gun up and you know stole gum and left a toy store and that like influenced him to write the whole scene where bart has saying like hold on or else this guy's gonna get it and like, you know, everyone's like, he might just be crazy enough to do it. Like his own little things that he has happened in his lone life influences writing. And when you hear him talk about all these things, his ability, he's so quick. And I mentioned when you see him on Carson or you see him on a talk show, or, you know, if you see him on Leno later on, the point is he is just so lightning fast. He is genuinely funny conversationally. And that ability to not only take that talent that he has of his quickness, but to then synthesize that and to put it into an entire group i think mel brooks is possibly the greatest comedy mind of the modern like era i i will go there i mean he's got three of the afi top 100 movies and they are all very high producers young frankenstein blazing saddles are up there and ones that didn't make it are just as good in my opinion too because i love all of them so i've forgotten about when 12 chairs you can go back and listen to chad and i talk on that one i love that too and that's like swept under the rug is like the footnote of his career he's great genius i will throw the g word out there best supporting actor this is tough mel brooks gives you a lot of people to appreciate chad with burton gilliam he's the guy that plays lyle he is the foreman under taggart he's the one that's trying to 
get Bart to sing Camp Down Ladies, I think every one of his scenes, he's stealing it. From the beginning, he's just making me laugh. He's a villainous goofball. I, I really like that. I like his facial acting. He has yes. he does confusion well. He does a giant smile, like a vapid, like dumb, like blank, like yes. smile. He's so good. I, that's a great choice. Brian, how about you? Best supporting actor? I went with Gene Wilder. I absolutely love his character in this. It's so much fun. I honestly need to make an effort to see more movies with him in it. He's a funny man. And I love the scene where he doubting that he's actually the Waco kid and how fast he is. He's like, take that chest piece down in front of you. Oh, yeah. And like, and like you just don't even see him move. And then, is this your chest piece? And he pulls it out of his holster. <laughs> so good. Mine, we didn't talk a lot about Harvey Corman. He is Headley Lamar. And I have to say, he is a riot. He is so funny. I mean, Chad, you like good villains. Does he do it for you in the villain department for getting laughs? Oh, he's so good. Even the thing with the paddle ball where he's just like, mm. mine's broken and his <laughs> frustration with that. And he's going to make some things. It could have been so much worse. I don't particularly like the froggy bathtub scene, but he, really? he, he does make that funny of just crying out for froggy in the sheer panic. Like it's a dumb scene, but few people could make it work as well as he did. I love it when he goes to pick up the book and he says, yes, Haley versus the United States. There is precedent. Haley zero US seven. You see, it can be done. Right. (laughs) Um, He does slimy so well. He does all these ridiculous things and nobody mentioned him here, but he's technically a supporting actor. Mel Brooks, we talk about him as a director and a creator and a writer. He's hilarious as the governor. Oh my goodness. Yeah. The cross-eyed routine that he does while just—it's hard to cross your eyes that long. Stripping his—I uh, don't even know what she was supposed to be. Secretary. secretary. That's a secretary. Somehow that's still accurate to this day for a politician character. Hidden Jim, Chad. I went with Miss Stein, the secretary we just talked about, Robin Hilton. I mean, part of the reason she's there is just for ridiculous eye candy, which she does well. But I think she's actually genuinely funny. She doesn't get too many opportunities, but when she does, she's got that kind of annoying voice and she she does her job well. Good one. And Brian, Hidden Jim. I, I think I went with Carol Arthur on this one. Harriet Johnson. Oh. <laughs> she cracked me up. I just, yeah, I she's know. the one that goes to the window that's like, you won't tell anyone I was here. Oh, yeah. And, and the, 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 where she's like being beaten. She's like, oh, have you ever seen brutality like this? Oh, oh. <laughs> And then like five minutes later, she's walking down the street and she's fine. (laughs) The pie, the whole like you've won me over thing is so good. When she comes back, she's like, you'll have the decency to not tell anybody we talked. (laughs) And this is is that smoothness of Playboy Model that I love so much of like, oh, yeah, sure. (laughs) My hidden gem is going to be Dom DeLuise. It's not that hidden. Uh, He's a big name in the comedic world, but he is just so funny as Buddy Bizarre doing the dance number berating the people for how they're dancing then stepping into the water himself and you know i just wish we had a little bit more of him out the streets as like things were pouring out into the streets he's Hmm. very funny recast if you had to recast somebody else and put somebody else in their place who would it be chad i went after mongo alex karras is pretty big but i want bigger so i want andre the giant in this role 
I feel like he is more intimidating, but also kind of more playful in the end. Is he around in 74? Yes. Interesting. I didn't know he goes back this far. Well, you bring your Princess Bride appreciation to this one. I approve. So, Brian, recast. I went with the gum chewer. They get shot. Yeah, the line. line. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, yeah. This is where I want a Clint Eastwood. This is where I want a John Wayne. This is where the 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 mainstay, huge name, I'll, I I am Westerns is the the dude who gets shot in, in the bad guy line to sign up because he didn't bring enough gum for the rest of the class. I like it. I like it a lot. That's that's very good. Mine's a little bit of a cowardly recast, and you can help me figure out where to plug him in there. I'd want Marty Feldman. Again, Mel Brooks uses characters over and over again. I want Marty Feldman in this. So if you've seen Young Frankenstein, he's Igor. He's in Silent Movie, which is the follow-up movie to this. He's just a very physically funny man, but he's also very funny in general. I don't know where to put him in. He could be the, what was it, servant butler type guy to Hedley Lamar? Just, you could add another aide or something in the governor's room. <laughs> like somebody who also knows that the governor's an idiot, you know, because he's very good at that. Get me Marty Feldman. Best shot. Chad, did you have a favorite shot? I did. When we first meet Jim, he is hanging upside down in his jail cell. And it's a little bit disorienting. It's a tight shot. So I, I think it's a fun introduction to the character. Interesting. Yeah, that is a good one. Brian, best shot. I, I went real literal with best shot and put down Gene Wilder shooting the dynamite because there's absolutely no way in the entire world that gun could actually make that shot. Right. Why Why not use a, a long gun? Like, this is funny. I was just... That's the, the preposterous nature. Yeah, like, I mean, I watched it and I was kind of like, and, and the first thing I thought when I saw the scene again, I was like, uh, yeah, that's, that works for best shot, but I know I'm going to get some groans for it. You do, you do. Groan. Uh, my best shot is going to be the, the either aerial or crane shot that they take where everybody's running into the streets from the Warner Brothers studios out onto West Riverside Drive in Burbank. It is just... This is the crescendo of the movie. And I actually had in my notes, uh, when we covered Monty Python, I felt like it was abrupt when the, that movie ends and everybody's arrested and we, we realize we're not actually in medieval times. And it was like, they didn't know how to end the movie. They even said so. Like they had another ending plan. They ran out of money and they did that. And I remember the first time I saw Monty Python, it felt shortchanged. Since then, you get the feelings of the Python guys and you're just like, yeah, it's very fitting for what they do. It's a very anarchy kind of finish. This movie, I felt like, delivered that breaking of the wall and then just actually lived in it and spilled out into the streets and they were watching themselves in the film to figure out what was happening. And I just, you know, all of that was working for me at a very high level. And we talked a lot about breaking the fourth wall is kind of overdone sometimes. This wall breaks it so hard that I think that it pays massive dividends in a way that I don't think any other movie has been able to do on that mm -hmm. on that level. That that shot is the beginning of that whole pandemonium that I love. The scene, though, Chad. I really like Bart's arrival into Rockridge, starting with Gabby Johnson trying to tell them that the sheriff is <laughs> a, a ding. Yeah, he he gets gone quite a bit. Oh, the sheriff is near. No, we're and yeah. From that, even to the sign rolling up. And Bart going over and pulling the sign slowly down, just the silence and the hostage situation. Everything 
like you're kind of nervous for Bart, but it's funny at the same time. Yeah, the world that you know that we're in, we're having a fun time, so we're not too worried for him. But yeah, you're right. A hearty handshake and a laurel. <laughs> for our new... Right. <laughs> the way the band stops playing, it's just, it's all great there. Brian, best scene. I love the chess game. That whole interaction between Wilder and Bart early on in this is, it's probably my favorite part of the movie in general. Hmm, where they're telling each other their stories. Yes. Yeah. I don't know. He he and in in Clevin. I don't know. It, it just it, it really sums up like what you can expect from the rest of the film with how they interact with one another. Yeah. My best scene is going to be the governor being duped by Hedley Lamar. There's two scenes with them, but where you see Hedley being all slimy, conning. Mel Brooks, the governor, the paddle balls, as you mentioned, was very funny. You know, mine's mine's warped. <laughs> and, um, you know, uh, convincing him to put a black sheriff. And he's like, why would I do that? And like, I love how he grabs Clavon Little and brings Bart yes. in front of the camera. Have you noticed that he's like, and then he realizes he has the wrong guy and he walks backwards. Again, the cross eyes paying dividends there. There's just so many great things, and there's a lot of good lines going back and forth, at which point I will come back to this scene later for my best quote. So, best wardrobe or makeup moment, Chad? I just really like Jim's tan outfit. I think it looks great on Gene Wilder. Like, he wears the heck out of it. He does look good in it, yeah. Yeah, Waco kid. Brian, how about you? Best wardrobe or makeup moment? I mean, I think everything that Clevin wears in this is is meant to... Uh, enter into that same swagger that you're referring to and i think that i feel like it almost made a a trend in the motown western aesthetic his wardrobe smooth like he is so my best wardrobe or makeup moment and chad touched on this earlier with his recast i I, i'm a simple man robin hilton as the governor's secretary wearing the the red satin like white fur line thing that she's got on with like that I don't know what it is. It is like a chain of diamonds that like hangs down. Hey, I don't know what that is there for, but it, it, it has my attention. So um, I'm a simple man. That's exactly what it's meant to do. Oh, also, she has a choker necklace like the like the those are fun, too. <laughs> Carradine thought so. Change one thing. Chad. Here's where I break Russell's heart because I get bored during the whole final act, the breaking the fourth wall. I think Monty Python did it better. Shorten it. Get rid of the dance number. That would help me immensely. I did not enjoy the whole Dom DeLuise dance number theme. It just felt extraneous. Figure out a way to make it work quicker. See, I want to go through the wall of another movie even and just, you know, of of another variety and have the guys in top hats and the Western guys fighting one more movie. It's the rule of threes. You could do that quicker and not have a dance number in it. You could have them busting through sets one two three just you don't need to waste my time for an extra 10 minutes but then they deliver something i might not have thought to do on my own the commissary while they're running the tour through is is also great they just wanted hitler in the background doing the heil hitler salutes which was funny yes and then everybody comes out with a pie in their face because pies in the face are always funny what was his name paul like he sit hitler sits down and they're like how you doing paul Yeah, it's funny to see people in costume like that, which invariably they probably would. 
change one thing, Brian, and I'm going to limit you to only one thing. I I'm not even I'm not even going to go into it. You're going to stop letting Chad and I be on the same podcast <laughs> comedies together. So, uh, ditto. Oh, okay. No, that's hey. At least I you've only broken my heart once in the same way together. So as opposed to two separate times. So that's that's actually easier for me to take. So, um, full disclosure, we tried to do a serious western for this. This was a backup episode. Like you know, Chad came out of the woodwork to save the day. Like he's been on like four weeks, five weeks in a row or something like that. So you're getting a heavy dose of Chad and our guest didn't show up this week. And we're like, let's do something. We'd have a hard time doing. Let's do a Western and crickets. Nobody wanted to do one. And so Chad's like, can we do blazing? Hey, 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 I wanted to do one. We could have done Cowboys and aliens. Oh no, no, we will not. It's, it's too new. And it's too awful. 2011. 2011. It's not too new. It's not too new. All right. Well, it's still too awful. <laughs> we'll need to cover every Harrison Ford movie at some point. But anyway, I guarded myself and I said, "Are we sure we want to do this? You know, like th- is this the right lineup to, to handle this this, this <laughs> very important and hilarious movie? Is this is this? I've had my heart broken on the Breaking Away episode. So no, this was just a Ken Fry be trusted. Hey, we haven't we haven't gotten a favorite quote yet. Okay, mm. <laughs> so. My change one thing. I just want more. I want more of the pandemonium that's going on that you guys wanted to take out. I want. I want to dive into that. I want more in the studio world. I want you know more Dom DeLuise. You know, I want him. Maybe Headley has made him angry, and he's chasing after him. I want to. I want to continue to bring this meta world of the actual people who are making movies out and live in that more, and continue the fast pace because. It's a roller coaster, and I love it. So, so as a, a a bit of an olive branch here, I'm like I can say that if there were more of that, because some of that was funny, if there were more of that, then it could have possibly fallen under that idea that you do it when it's funny, and then it's not funny anymore, and then it becomes funny again. Maybe it just didn't reach that point. Maybe, maybe. Best quote chat you've got to remember that these are just simple farmers these are people of the land the common clay of the new west you know morons and the fact that clevon didn't know this was coming and that laugh is genuine like gene wilder just made him break and they kept it it's just so funny yeah they're fondness for each other just shows throughout throughout this movie they have great chemistry Um, he is milking it for all it's worth like he he slows his pace because he can tell that he's breaking that cleavon's breaking so gene wilder is just twisting the knife i mean he's really good in this yeah just he's, he's hilarious brian best quote he's only been bleeped once so here you go brian i personally do not believe i deserve to be bleeped out for this Oh, Lord, do we have the strength to carry on this mighty task in the night, or are we just jerking off? I'll allow it. I'll allow it. All right. Yeah. All right. Yeah. <laughs> that, that made me laugh out loud. Um, I, I, love, I, I, I love raunchy preachers. They always make me laugh. And when he said that, I was like, <laughs> I just wasn't expecting it. 
I love the scene where he's like, hey, he he is a good in this good book. And then like somebody blasts the book out of his hands and he looks over at him. He goes, you're on your own. Right. He hits the guy in the end and and begs for forgiveness. He hits him with the Bible. All right. Uh, Mine is going to be there is a creative mob noise in in the governor's office. And everyone like the governor asked for harumph, harumph. Can we get a harumph? Give me a harumph out of this. Yes. You know, there's one of the townspeople in the room and he goes, hey, I didn't get a harumph out of that guy. And like Headley looks over to you heard him. Give him a harumph. (laughs) Give the the governor a harumph. The camera cuts over to the guy very scared. and He goes, harumph. (laughs) (laughs) I was like, you better watch it. I love it. So good. Chad already said one of my favorites when the sheriff is a in and then ding over and over again. Uh, I love the gibberish speaking that that guy does in general. That's some good old-fashioned country gibberish. <laughs> that entire rousing speech is fantastic. I was just going to say, it definitely reminded me of the dude from Waterboy. Yes. Yeah. I love the uh, when he goes up to give his speech, nobody brought this up, but uh, when he pulls the letter out of his pants and he reaches down, kind of, and he goes, excuse me while I whip this out. Oh my goodness! Between that and uh, where are the white women at? That was funny. And jumping around like a bunch of Kansas City can't say the other word because I'd like to appear on this podcast for the next two weeks. But those were frequent quotes. I think of teens in high school. Like those were the ones that I heard the most. I mean, that is just so funny to lure the KKK guys out of the villain line. Like, yes. You know, just to lay it on. Look what I got. <laughs> it's just so laying it on thick as possible. <laughs> and I love that. Obviously, he's this is before Dave Chappelle ever does the black Klansman kind of thing. But I mean, uh, he walks up there with his hands tucked into his KKK cloak and then walk, walks up and then like he's like, right. his hands are just dirty. That'll wash off. So dirty from the latest cross burning. Yeah. Followed by my next impression. Jesse Owens. <laughs> I love when Dom DeLuise is getting in that fight and he goes, not in the face. And he gets hit in the stomach and he's grateful for it. We've come full circle. Now, on a scale of five stars with half star intervals, Chad, what do you give Blazing Saddles from 1974? I am giving it a four and a half out of five. So it it's a classic for a reason. I still, I'll triple down on this. I still don't think you can make this movie today. I'm so glad it was made. And there just isn't anything like this anymore. So I I have a great time every time I I watch it. All right. And Brian, how about you? Five star scale, half star interval. It's a very enjoyable movie. I have a couple red flags for it, but I gave it a solid three. All right. That is criminally low, but I'm, I will. <laughs> <laughs> but but I, I appreciate that the uh, nothing appreciate- wrong with a three. Nothing wrong with a three. I feel like you've done that like courtesy of inflation of a full star just so that I can sleep tonight instead of waking up and like, I give it two stars. I told you, I listen, I will not compromise my podcast ethics to give you a half a star. <laughs> well, I appreciate it. I, uh, I sense you're rounding up and I, I'll take it, but I, I am not rounding up with this. I'm going full five stars. I hand out five stars more easily than everybody on this show, undoubtedly, but I mean it. This is a top 10 movie for me. This is a top five comedy for me. It's a top 10 movie for me. Russell's tired. He's so tired. He's handed out five stars to all these movies and he is tired. (laughs) 
I don't know. We we had one of those years like last year. We I gosh, I feel like I gave out more five stars than I ever have. We had some some downright good films last year. This year is a problem. I, but that's fine. Like you know what I mean. Like it can't all be feast. You know, it, and I don't know. I just no. That's what I mean. I'm having a lot of five stars. I don't like it. Oh, you're having a lot of fives this year. I don't think I've had. I, I'm not sure. I'd have to look back, but I don't think I've had any fives yet. We had Star Wars. Yeah, you did Star Wars. Oh, you gave it a five. Here's the thing. This is this is something for our, all of our listeners. I let mood influence me a lot. Like if I'm in the mood for something versus not in the mood for something. So I do absolutely no cross-referencing for my end-of-the-year rankings versus how I rank the movies uh, because I don't know how I felt at that time. So my end-of-the-year rankings ref- uh, reflect how I feel at that moment, and my rankings at the end of each show reveal, re- reveal how I felt right this second. So just, just so everybody knows. So would you like to help me pick a movie for next time, Chet? I would love to. All right. Where does he get those wonderful toys? Let's do a movie with about toys. So option one, the toy from 1982. An unemployed reporter finds himself literally purchased as a toy for a rich spoiled brat. Option two, toys from 1992. When Lieutenant General Leland Zevo, played by Michael Gambon, inherits a toy making company, and begins making more toys, his employees band together to stop him before he ruins the name of Zevo Toys forever. Option 3. Ending in the Cupboard from 1995. Omri, a young boy growing up in Brooklyn, receives an odd variety of presents for his birthday. A wooden cupboard from his brother, and a set of simple antique keys from his mother. A plastic Native American from his best friend, Patrick. Read the book for Indian in the Cupboard. It's fantastic. But for movies, I'm going Robin Williams with Toys from 1992. All right. Let it be known on this day that I did not say anything about reading the book. It was Chad Robinson. (laughs) (laughs) That's true. It's true. Thank you all. The Lords, ladies and knights, the Retro Movie Roundtable, we invite you to reach out to us. We want to hear from you. So subscribe, rate, and review on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, Stitcher, Pandora, wherever you get your podcasts. So subscribe on our YouTube channel. Give us a like on Facebook, Instagram. Follow us on Twitter at, at movie underscore retro. Email us at retromovieroundtable at yahoo.com. And producing and providing this podcast is fun but not free. So we invite you to support the show at our Patreon page at www.patreon.com forward slash retromovieroundtable. Any contribution is much appreciated and will go towards making the show better for you, the listeners. As always, thank you for listening. Be good to each other and watch more movies. Brian? Oh, Master Robin, you lost your arms in battle, but you grew some nice boobs.